Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession today comes from Exodus 20, verses 14 and 15, quite short. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. Next to the commandment of respecting a man's life, which was the the command we had last week in verse 13, is that of respecting a man's domestic peace and honor. Adultery is an invasion of the household, a destruction of the bond that unites a family, a dissolution of the contract, which is a man, which is the probably a main basis of civil, social order within our country and elsewhere. It was forbidden by all civilized communities, which makes me wonder if we're still considered civilized. In the Old Testament, the punishment for this sin is severe. Leviticus and Deuteronomy clearly says that adulterers, man and woman, are to be put to death. As in all commandments, we have equality, men and women. The man who acts against the wife of his covenant is as great a sinner as the woman who breaks the marriage bond. And our third duty towards our neighbor is the respect respect of his right to his property. In the laws of states, private property has been recognized and to a great degree as much of our social order has been based on just as much as marriage of a man and a woman. The man who labors hard to builds something with his hands and undergoes pain in doing so, feels that whatever he's made is his. He owns it. Or if he works, labors at a company, um, works hard, earns wages, goes out and purchases something with those wages, it's his. The right to that is his. It's indisputable. If he's deprived by it by force or fraud, he's wronged. It's interesting that the Eighth Commandment forbids this wrong of of stealing and requires us to respect the property of others no less than respecting a man's life, which was the Sixth Commandment, and their domestic peace and honor, the Seventh Commandment. I I think the Tenth Commandment is probably strikes at the root, thou shalt not covet, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. In light of this, we need to confess because we have often wanted more than the Lord's given us. Today, as we continue, we join Paul in Ephesus, where he stayed for two years at the beginning of his third missionary journey. This time is very eventful, and and we see Paul was no stranger to controversy in this chapter. So before we go to the text, let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for inspiring and preserving Luke's record of Paul's ministry. We pray that you would bless us with attentiveness in the complicated parts and courage in the controversial parts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Today I'll break from our our typical uh, process and 
address a passage at a time because there's a lot going on in the chapter. You know, if you were going to break it up, there might be five or six different vignettes here in the chapter. So I'll first bring us to verses 1 through 10. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland county and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. Wow, well, two very, two very different portions here. The first one we're going to spend maybe most of our time on this morning, and that is Paul's care and teaching for these disciples in Ephesus, in particular having to do with the Holy Spirit and with Christian baptism. And then we'll also make some, I'll make some comments about Paul's investment of time in building the church there. So I would encourage you for this very first section, stay with me. We're going to be going in and out of the text to back to systematic theology, words that you've maybe not heard before or haven't thought about for a while. So stick with me in my reasoning through this process. So first of all, Paul is addressing believers. He is addressing Christians, people who have faith in God. And we know that because he found disciples. And so we're deriving from that that he found Christians there in Ephesus. So knowing that we know about the plan of salvation and how, brings, how God brings this about, we know the following about these believers. One, that they have received regeneration. Regeneration is the theological word that refers to being born again and that they have been born again by the Holy Spirit of God. That's sort of step one in terms of the activation of of salvation in the life of an individual here prior to their, uh, or subsequent to their election. And then followed up with conversion. Conversion including two components, the gift of faith and the gift of repentance. So regeneration, faith, Repentance. Those would be things that would be characteristic of someone who has come to faith, someone who's a Christian. Now, we know that regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit, and this is very clear in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus 
as recorded <clears throat> in John 3. John 3, 3 through 5 reads, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again, regenerate. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be, bor and be born? And Jesus answered, here's the key part, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, physically, and of the spirit, regeneration, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Full stop. Regeneration, step one in, in, that, in that process of bringing about someone from spiritual death to spiritual life. Now, how does that compare to what we see recorded in the book of Acts? Right here, Acts chapter 19. Well, a few times in the first 20 years of the church, you'll recall the first 20 years of the church are Acts 1 through about where we are now, about Acts 19. Maybe it's 22, something like that. The outward sign of the Holy Spirit is sometimes called the baptism of the Spirit. So how do you know that someone has received the baptism of the Spirit or received the Spirit? It's sometimes in several different spots called the baptism of the Spirit. And that baptism of the Spirit, here's the important part, the thing that's very different about these four parts of Acts than for the rest of Christian history is that for these four parts of Acts, the baptism of the Spirit followed significantly in time from belief. Belief happened at some point significantly later, hours, days, weeks, months, they received the baptism of the Spirit. That happened four times in the book of, of Acts. Now, how do we know that the, that the baptism of the Spirit had taken place? Well, Luke tells us, but in addition to Luke telling us, the outward sign was the speaking of tongues. And we've seen these four uh, times, these four events in Acts, where the baptism of the Spirit and speaking in tongues happened subsequent to faith. We saw it happen with the Jews in Acts 2. We saw it with the God-fearers in Cornelius' household. And we saw it with the Samaritans in Acts 8. And now we're seeing it with 12 Gentile men in Acts 19. These four instances are different than what we expect the normal Christian life to look like. But I want to point out that this is just the separation in time between belief, saving faith, and the baptism of the Spirit. That happened four times. And what's really interesting, really interesting to me, is that we do not see this separation and the sign gift that follows for over 1,800 years after this. We don't see it in Christian history. Until the early 20th century, maybe the late 19th century, we don't see this happening at all. And now all of a sudden, it starts to happen again. That's, that's something that's worth noting, something to worth, worth paying attention to. So the very public miracle I would propose to you that took place with the baptism of the Spirit and the speaking of tongues, I think had a very specific purpose. God providentially wanted to make sure that it was public knowledge that, and it was humanly talked about, that others would talk about it. Hey, did you hear what happened the other day? 
The Jews came to faith. The God-fearers came to faith. The Samaritans came to faith. The Gentiles came to faith. I think what we're seeing are newsworthy items where the Spirit of God in particular empowered these men with sign gifts in the furtherance and advance of the gospel. It is absolutely not appropriate for us to make this normalized for today. These texts don't bring to us what should be the normal Christian experience. And in fact, this pattern was not seen, was unheard of in in real time for almost 2,000 years, from the first century until the 20th. So now, on to what this means for us today. In addition to it not being normative, what is the normal sequence of these things today? How do we understand these things to fit together? Step zero. I'm not starting at step one. Step zero. Step zero is that we are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins based on original sin and actual sin. That is who we are. We, are, we, we start in this picture spiritually dead. At some point in time, those who have been elect before the foundation of the world are regenerated. We are given a new heart. That supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in us, of granting spiritual life to dead sinners, happens. And the Spirit gives us a new heart. In the words of Jesus, when he was speaking to Nicodemus, we are born again. Regeneration. Next comes the gift of faith. Ephesians 2 has a fantastic few verses on the gift of faith. We won't go there at the moment. Followed by the gift of repentance. And together, we consider those conversion. Is it possible to have saving faith and not repent? No, that is not what we see. We see regeneration followed by faith and repentance. The change of mind, the change in behavior. If we don't see those things, we don't have reason to believe that true faith has taken, taken hold in a person's life. So then, we are then empowered by the Holy Spirit. What happens after that? After conversion, regeneration and conversion. We are then empowered by the Holy Spirit to live life in a God-honoring way, becoming progressively more sanctified, more holy, more set apart, less sin, showing forth the fruit of the Spirit. That's the normal Christian life. That pattern has been in, in place for hundreds of years and is still what we experience today. So I would propose to you that the events of Acts 19, although they may be misinterpreted by other traditions, maybe even in this town or in this county, that what we should make sure that we're doing is looking at the first part of Acts 19 in light of systematic theology, in light of hermeneutics, how should we interpret and understand these words before us today. And that's what we've, that's what we've just walked through. Now we'll move on to the second part of this passage. Meanwhile, back in AD 54, after the disciples' Christian baptism, they were baptized with the baptism for repentance, John the Baptist, 
Now they receive Christian baptism. And you'll note here that Luke uses shorthand. They were baptized in Jesus' name. They were baptized in, in, this, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We understand that to be the case. We know that we, have, we serve a triune God. We have no reason to believe that it was truncated. It is our practice to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So meanwhile, Paul remains with them for more than two years. He starts out at the synagogue where people of spiritual interest are, where he has a legacy, where he understands, because having been a Jew, he understands their context and their, and their background. He is ministering to the Jews there. But after a while, things got a little dicey. He continued to, to irritate them, and they said, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna start to get Paul out of here. And in fact, they were successful. Paul ended up stepping out of the synagogue and continuing, I believe the text even says, meeting daily in the school of Tyrannus, which is awesome. So he made disciples. He continued to make disciples. He, wasn't, he didn't just walk away from Ephesus. He knew that he needed to be in Ephesus to bring about the growth of the, of the kingdom. And so he stayed in the school of Tyrannus for two years after that. And here, being in the commercial center of the, of the ancient world, the gospel went out from there. People heard it, they were blessed, they came to faith, and it went out from there. And then Luke tells us, as he continues on to the next part of our passage, about another big deal time that was happening during Paul's time there. So now on to Acts 19, verses 11 through 22. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. The miracles just kept on happening the whole time that he was there. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists Wrap your mind around that. You don't hear that a lot today. Itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them. Hello. I don't know if they were expecting that. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the, the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of God continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events... 
Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So there are two big ideas here from this, from the seven sons of Sceva that I think I want to put out, put before you. And one is that Paul, writing to this very same church, he's in Ephesus, remember, about five years later, he writes a letter that we know as Ephesians and from his imprisonment in Rome. And what he says in Ephesians 6.12 is that, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Here's the big idea. Unseen evil is real. There really are devils. There really is a Satan. There really are angels who we might not see with our eyes the large, large, large majority of the time, and yet the evil is real. It's a very effective lie of Satan that we get caught up in only what we can see. And this passage reminds us that in some part, some part of the evil around us results from direct and specific satanic action. We dare not lose sight of that. That's really important to know. Secondly, after, after this incident with the seven sons of Schema and the, uh, Sceva, rather, many showed the fruit or the result of re repentance. It would appear as though they changed their minds. All this magic stuff, all this stuff I'm doing, I'm going to stop doing it. In fact, I'm going to show you that I'm going to burn these valuable books because I'm not going to do this anymore. They've set it all aside. These books contained evil. They didn't say, hey, I'll sell you this book, you know, for, for 10 pieces of silver or 100 pieces of silver, and then I get something out of it. No, I'm just going to destroy this because it's evil. There's an indication of a change of heart that this incident brought about in what was going on there. So in terms of application to each of us, how about each of us? How about us? When we've confessed our sins and we've said we repent of it, have we actually seen changes in our life that indicate that? We've confessed something as sin. We've said, God, you require that we do something different. I'm going to turn, my, turn away from that. I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to change my behavior. It may not be perfect, but our direction should be in the way of progressive sanctification. It should be in the direction of moving there. Now let's finish the chapter. So the last, uh, the last roughly 20 verses, verses 23 through 41. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Wow. Luke gives us an incredible understatement. And knows no little disturbance concerning, concerning the way. And I want to thank Brother Dan Knapp for, for highlighting this verse to me just last week. You know, he, he looked it up and he said, here's a verse. This is one to, to look at. 
completely agree. Paul was not afraid of what would happen if, he, if God blessed his ministry. We should not be afraid if God blesses our ministry. Paul was faithful, God blessed it, and Paul became a lightning rod for controversy, and that was okay. This is not about leaving the worship service and just making a lot of noise. No, that when we leave here, let's keep our eye on the prize. What is it that we are here to do? And be faithful to God, but let's also not be surprised if the world gets upset with us when we share the gospel with them, when we talk about kingdom things with them. Verses 24 and 25, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And he gathered together, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. So kind of a, an obvious statement. You know, this is how we make our living, right? And he's just about to start to explain that Paul is getting in the way of this. Paul's saying, idols, don't do that. All that demonic stuff, don't do that. We have a gospel here that's worth following. And Demetrius then starts to stir up trouble for Paul. He tries to organize those whose livelihoods will be affected by this. And I think this loss of wealth is something that we should pay attention to. We should pay attention to in our time today. Because if there are two things that authorities or, or others in the world don't like, it's a loss of wealth, where is the money, and a loss of power. And if the message of Christianity threatens the loss of money or power, we should expect there will be backlash there. And I think we can see plenty of examples of that in our world today, so I don't need to, to make that point to you, but let's be aware that the world is sensitive and doesn't want to lose money or power. Let's see how this riot developed here in, in Ephesus. So verses 26 to 34. And you see and hear that not only Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. He was paying attention. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with a confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him in. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. They wanted to protect Paul. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. 
But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great, can you imagine two hours of great is Artemis of the Ephesians? So the crowd was getting into riot status here. They, some didn't know why they were there, but what happens when dozens or hundreds or even a thousand people start chanting the same thing? You might get drawn in. You might start to realize this is why we're here. Then in verses 31 to, 35 to 41, we read how this all comes to a close. Some really interesting points here. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. Calm down. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. That's those that they took captive who were with Paul, those Macedonians. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls, judges. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it should be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Proceed as you were, keep going. And miracle of miracles, they dispersed. They listened to this guy. They listened to the town clerk. They listened to his two big arguments. So I, I took a look at these two arguments. What are the things that were so compelling in Ephesus that, that made this riotous crowd go away? Well, first, he made an appeal to, the law, to law and order. He said, you're on the verge of, of doing something that's illegal. Let's do things that are in line with the way we do things around here, law and order. You have a problem with somebody? Bring them to the judge. The courts are open. Now, our court system is a, a lot more delays involved, but apparently that was something that you could do in this time. So he said, if you want to do something, let's do it right. Let's bring these men to the court. And then two, I found it absolutely fascinating. I was going back to a college course I had taken on, on logical fallacies, pieces of reasoning that don't actually conclude the right thing. They employ... a. But this town clerk employs one of those several dozen logical fallacies. And the one in the, the English is, uh, is the appeal to the people. Uh, argumentum ad populum. And that's an argument that appeal, that's based on claiming a truth or affirming something is good because many people think so. In this case, we all know Artemis, right? That's the, you know, hey, we're all in this together. We all know this. So... I would say that in, in way of application, there are two sort of takeaways that I have from this passage. One, the town clerk appealing to law and order benefited the gospel ministry there. The rioters did not get their way. There wasn't the lynching that day. These men were not killed 
because they were preaching the gospel that day, because law and order took over. So I think it's completely appropriate for us to appeal to law and order when, when we run into a situation where that is, the, that is the need, that is the order of the day. It's good to live in a society where we have law and order and we can appeal to those things. We're going to see that a lot as Paul is imprisoned in Rome, and we're going to see that in the coming months. Secondly, I think it's also, I remember back to my, my class on fallacies and on, on logic and reasoning and thinking that would do us well to understand those fallacious arguments. There are lots of categories of fallacious arguments, like the red herring. Anybody heard of a red herring or a straw man? You should, it, it would be good to read those again. And then when you read something on the internet, you read some news, you hear someone making an argument, Let's understand whether they're making an argument that's valid or fallacious, false. I think that would serve us well. So as we close today, I want to recap just a few things that we've gone over. One, I would encourage us all to be, exercise great care as we apply scriptures to our lives. I think it's Many traditions, several traditions, misapply that very first section of, of, Acts 20, uh, of Acts 19 to their lives in terms of the baptism of the Spirit and, and speaking in tongues and prophesying. They misunderstand what went on here. I think it's really important for us to study and to be careful about how we apply the scriptures to our lives. Two, I think it's very important also for us to stay vigilant as to the schemes of the devil and, and his minions and the power of the spirit to overcome them. It is exactly the reason that we have uh, passages like Ephesians 6 to remind us of the full armor of God. And third, but certainly not, not uh, any less important, we are to seek true repentance from sin. When we become aware of sin, it is completely normal and appropriate for us to agree with God, confess that sin, and then covenant to change our behavior, change our thinking, so that true repentance takes place and we continue to become more holy over time. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the record of Paul's commitment to the Great Commission and his multi-year ministry in Ephesus. Bless us that we would remember our baptism, that we would remember who it is that we wrestle against in our day-to-day -day lives, and that we are to be both faithful and growing in grace based on the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we sing as you talk. I want to continue where we left off last week with Paul's letter to the Galatians. Here in chapter 6, we're instructed to bear one another's burdens. Verse 1, brothers, if anyone was caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ bear one another's burdens. How do we do that? By sympathizing, 
with, assisting each other in their weakness, their trials, grievances, pain. We, it's interesting, we teach our young men manners, we call it, right? To open doors and, and to carry groceries, to physically carry the burden of the elderly. And likewise, we should, our manners as Christians should be to bear the spiritual burden of each other, trials and problems. And by doing this, we make a distinguishing mark on ourselves as his disciples gathered here. So this is why we come to the table to commune with each member of the body of Christ here. We must also bear one another's burdens, just as Jesus Christ bore our burdens of our sorrow and carried away our load of guilt. At Christ Church of Livingston County, we warmly invite to the Lord's Supper all those who are baptized disciples of Jesus Christ and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. By eating the bread, drinking the wine with us, you acknowledge that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. You also acknowledge to the elders of this congregation that you are in covenant with God being active in a congregation which is covenantly bound to the triune God through word and sacrament. We believe here at Christ Church of Livingston County that the Lord's Supper is an integral act of confession, repentance, renewal, and abiding in Christ. Moreover, it's our conviction that the bread and wine should be received by all baptized covenant members who are able to physically eat and drink the elements, including young children, being raised in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.